welcome to the Discovering Our Scars podcast, where we share personal experiences so we can learn from each other. I'm Steph. And I'm Beth. I've been in recovery for 16 years and am the author of Discovering My Scars, my memoir about what's done in the darkness eventually comes to light. I'm a lawyer turned pastor who's all about self-awareness and emotional health because I know what it's like to have neither of those things. Beth and I've been friends for years, have gone through a recovery program together, and when I wanted to start a podcast, she was the only name that came to mind as co-host. I didn't hesitate to say yes because I've learned a lot from sharing personal experiences with Steph over the years. We value honest conversations and we hope you do too. On today's show, we're going to have an honest conversation titled, How Can I Love My Scars? Then we'll share a slice of life and the show will close with questions for reflection. We'll invite you to reflect on the conversation in your own life. So Steph, how can I love my scars? That's what we're going to talk about today. Tell me, why did you title your book, Discovering My Scars? What what does that mean? Well, we talk about scars a lot on this podcast. Shocker, because, you know, it's in our title. (laughs) (laughs) And the title of the podcast is taken from the title of my book. Um, I think to me, scars is more complicated than um, I think we can see. Right. Um, right. I think there are scars that are visible and I think that's what people kind of tend to think of. And you can have scars from, from so many different things. My my mom has a scar from um, a vaccine she got when she was a kid. You know, there's so many different types of scars you can have. But um, for me, as I was going through my life and realizing the things that I wanted to share and, you know, the really hard times, I realized that there were scars that were, were not, be able to be seen. There were scars on my heart. There were scars that chose the direction of my life because I had these scars that, um, that were internal. And so for me, scars are more complicated than, you know, I fell off my bike and that's the, you know, the scar from it. And so through writing my book, I realized I was discovering my scars. I was discovering those that you couldn't see. And I was working through those and I was, not letting them, you know, control my life anymore. And I was able to accept them and love them actually, which is an odd concept to love a scar. Like when I, and it hasn't always been that like that way, you know, especially I have scars on my arm from when I get engaged in non-suicidal self-injury. And for a long time, those were really hard for me to see and something that I was afraid for people to see and say something about Um, And now when I see them, I see strength. I see how much work I've done to get to the place I am today. And um, I think there's, there can be a lot of strength when I know for me, there's a lot of strength when I have worked through a scar and um, I can see the positive that has come out of it instead of looking at them as, you know, a negative thing. Yeah. I mean, the thing about a scar is that um, in some way it does represent healing Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even even um, even those wounds on our those wounds to our you know in our emotions you know the emotional scars or the wounds to our heart, it's like well, if I can get to the point that it's a scar, then that means I've I've gone through it. Yeah. Right. And and so a scar can almost help us have perspective, but it also can be a reminder of the really hard thing, right? Yeah. And so that can make it hard to love because it's a constant reminder uh, of what was a difficult or traumatic experience. Yeah. I think that's definitely a challenge to find, to see the healing in it. Like I think it's easy to look at a scar and to see the trauma of it, but you can look at it and you can see the healing that um, happened through that. But I don't think you can see the healing until you've done the healing, you know, until you've done the emotional healing of that moment. 
And I think there's probably people that have never done that emotional healing, which is just hard to see. Like I know there's people in my life that I've um, can see that with certain things. And it's, you know, you can't tell anyone how to heat, like, you know, you need to fix this. You mm -hmm. need to work on this. Yeah. Uh, it's something that you personally have to decide. I want to work on this. That's yeah. the, that's the first step. Yeah. I've, I have caught myself many times feeling aggravated or frustrated. And then later, you know, when I was kind of, when I will reflect on, okay, well, what, what happened there? Why was I feeling that? It's like, oh, I wasn't being mindful of their scars. Yeah. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't being empathetic. I wasn't, um, wasn't remembering. I was, I was, I didn't approach them with curiosity, which is one of my things I tried to do. Like, okay, I'd be curious about why they are reacting that way or saying those things or holding that viewpoint instead of just reacting, right? Be curious instead of reacting. Um, because everybody's got scars. Yeah. Everyone has life experiences that have brought them to who they are today and make the, help them make the choices that they make, whether there's people, you know, there's, we've talked about our political views before. And, you know, there's people that have completely opposite political views for me. And I cannot understand how someone can think that way. Like, right, you know, and right. I think, I think all of us think that, like, how can someone think the opposite way of right, us, you know, right. but they've had some kind of life experiences that have brought them to where they are so afraid to look outside of their bubble that this is, this is all they can do. And this is all they can focus on. Um, and it doesn't like, it doesn't excuse someone's behavior, but whenever someone is like completely opposite for me or like getting super frustrated with somebody, I just try to think they must have had something in their life that has brought them to, to this place. Um, and I may never know what it is. And especially if it's just a random stranger, you know, I'm never going to know what that is, but I know that I've had so many experiences that built me. And so I have to assume that they have those and I don't have to like it, but it helps me to at least not get like so frustrated every time with, with certain people. Yeah. And so, and sometimes I'll hear people say things like, well, I went through that and it was no big deal. Mm. And so then it's like, well, like we expect people to react the same way to their trauma or their difficulty or whatever, or, or just their, their life, their experiences. We expect them to act the same way that, that we act, but everybody's unique. Everybody is different. Everybody is going to react differently. And, and that scar is going to look different on each person, even if it's the same experience. Well, and you don't know what other experiences someone has had that may compound into this one experience that you're like, oh, it was easy. I got through that. Why not? Right. Um, well, I mean, you know, you've talked about this on the podcast before is that you had cancer. Yeah. Um, you're what, 100 percent cancer free now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they, they will never say that, but they say no oh. evidence of disease. Oh, okay. I haven't had any evidence of disease for, I'm coming up on year four. Yeah. So I feel pretty good about it. <laughs> yeah. And you, I mean, you shared that story. You're, you know, you were able to like, when that happened, you're like, okay, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Yep. And then there's other people. And obviously cancer for everybody is completely different. Yes. And um, the type and all those things. Yeah. But I have, I've actually had so many people recently that I've heard that have cancer and it's just interesting to see how people 
react to it and yes. you know the process they follow and their um kind of outlook on it it's just interesting to see you know how some people um they're like okay well this we just follow the process here we go boom right. boom boom and there's some people that just are completely devastated by it which i feel like i would probably be that person but um well i have i have this exact situation in my life right now mm -hmm. so i have there are two women who i'm close to two older women one of them being my mom who she was just diagnosed with breast cancer. And at first she was like, well, I'm not sick. And she's never had, uh, she's birthed four children, but she's never had major surgery. Um, you know, she's never had to be in a cast or anything like that even. And so she was like, what do you mean? I have cancer. Right. But she immediately followed up. Right. Like they were like, okay, well there's something on your mammogram. So one week later, she went and got the needle biopsy with the ultrasound. And one week later, she was in the oncologist. And one week after that, she was with the surgeon. You know, she just was very diligent about following her steps. And we expect that she's going to have a great outcome. There's another older woman in my life who uh, just before my mom's diagnosis came in, they called and said that she needed to come back in for a needle biopsy. And she told me, I'm not doing that. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, why not? And she said, well, I'm, I'm older. And, you know, even if it's cancer, I'm not going to do anything about it. And so but so to me, her approach was to put her head in the sand, right? And I was like, but maybe you would get the all clear and you would never have to worry about it, you know, but they just have different life experiences that brought them to those conclusions. And, and it's their bodies. So they yeah. get to decide how they're gonna um, go forward with their treatment. But it was just interesting, because literally it was happening at the same time, you know, that I could they're about their similar ages, and they just had very different approaches to, uh, to their medical care and what they wanted to know. Yeah. And well, and it's, and it makes me wonder the person that didn't want to have the, the biopsy, like what maybe family history does she have or friend history of seeing people go through this kind of treatment, you know, yeah. cause if she's already made up in her mind, she doesn't want treatment. It might be because she's seen someone go through some horrible right. treatment and that's you know, a great point. That's she doesn't want to, she doesn't even want to get to that place. Yeah. Because the one thing my mom has said from the very beginning is I just hope I don't have to have chemo. I hope I don't have to have chemo for a lot. I mean, a lot of reasons. It's a very normal thing. I mean, I actually, when I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, I thought the same thing, but for my mom, it's really high stakes because she has a friend who died not from cancer, but from the effects of the chemo, mm. you know, somebody she was really close yeah. to. So I know that that's in her mind. It's like, yeah. you know, chemo will kill me. So that's, that's part of her experience, part of what she brings to that, um, to her own treatment plan and to her own, you know, diagnosis. So it's true. We all have different life experiences. And even when we're going through the exact same things, doesn't mean that our other experiences have been the same. So our reactions and, and feelings about it are going to be different. How do you help somebody uh, like, you know, not your mom, but the friend, you know, if that was your mom, and she said, you know, I don't want to do the needle bi biopsy. And maybe you knew kind of the history of why she might be afraid of, you know, going forward. How do you help somebody that you love with that process? Yeah, I think I, I mean, if it's my mom, it's different because yeah. with her, I would be more direct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also I would be like, I would play the me card. Well, can't you do this for me? Oh gosh. You know, <laughs> um, but with this other lady, what I tried to do was to ask questions, Yeah, you know, well, what would happen if you went and got the needle biopsy yeah. and it came back all clear? Yeah. You know, what would happen if you got the needle biopsy and it did show that maybe you needed to have, um, a lumpectomy, you know, yeah. what, what would that be like for you? Um, just trying to walk through some scenarios to, just to invite her to kind of flesh it out mm -hmm. some, 
but also you you realize there's a point where you can't keep pushing yeah you know because it's you don't want to create pain you don't want to create trauma yeah i think that's a great approach is to really help the person process because that might be also something that they're not able to fully do for themselves as process why they don't want to do it they may not even realize why they don't want to do it like it might be something that's kind of deep and buried from childhood that they don't even realize that that's why um, they don't want to go through the process. So I think that's really good to help them talk it through first asking for permission. That's something we learned from recovery is, you know, if you're going to try to help someone with through that process is to first start by saying, Hey, you know, could I ask you some, some questions and we can kind of talk through this a little bit more and always asking for permission because that really helps set the stage for a safe conversation. So, you know, talking about the when you got your cancer diagnosis and that sort of thing, do you think that's because you are more resilient? You think you have more resiliency than typical? Do you think that has anything to do with it? I do think of myself as a resilient person and I don't, maybe in some ways that's a learned skill, but also I think part of it's personality. Mm. Yeah. And I think my default is, is optimism. Mm. So I'm like, this is probably going to be okay. Mm. So then that makes it easier, I think, to think to think through the steps, you know, and to try to do it because, well, this is probably going to be okay. It's interesting that um, you say that because um, my dad is a psychologist, a testing psychologist, and and he's in Rotary. He loves Rotary. Mm. And one of the things is they send youth to other countries for a youth exchange. Or I guess they exchange youth. And um, something that he does is he gives them resiliency tests before he before they leave to see and, and that the scores actually give them an idea of how these kids are going to do in the countries. I don't think they like don't let them go if they get a, a low score, but you know, it just gives them an idea. And he usually can tell the kids that are actually going to come back before the time based mm-hmm. on their score. And then when they get back, he tests them again to see if it had changed. Um, so it's interesting. You can actually test for resiliency. That's so cool, as we're yeah. talking about it, I kind of want to like see if you would test us. Yeah, that would be a really boring podcast. So maybe <laughs> we would just come to it on the, you know, afterwards with the scores. Because um, I personally don't think I am that resilient. Mm. Um, you know, I work really hard to be at like, you know, if like 100 percent is the best you can be in life. I try really hard to be like 100 percent is like wonderful beautifully like mentally well like top-notch I work really hard to like be 90 percent like I work really hard to be like that is like my goal like I don't know like there's probably days where I'm a hundred I'm like go 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 um but I have to put a lot of work into my mental health for me to be able to function really well but when I am at like 70 I'm not doing well and things start piling on and I just can see like my resiliency is just like, I'm like, okay, I'm done. Nothing is, everything is, is over and everyone Mm -hmm. it's just the, the world is done. Um, so I would be, it would be interesting to take those tests to see if I'm right or wrong and you right or wrong as well. Yeah. You might be more resilient than you think. And I might be less resilient than I think. Yeah. Or (laughs) we might be right on point with that. Yeah. You know, especially like as I think about my mom, I do think of her as a resilient person. She's 80, so she's got a lot more life experience than I do. Yeah. But again, thinking about how the, I know somebody of a similar age who got a similar diag or potentially had a similar diagnosis at the same time that she did. It's like, I guess more life experience doesn't necessarily produce more resilience. 
Seems like it would produce more scars though. Right. I mean, just, well, what do you, how do you define someone that is resilient? Like, what does that look like to you to be resilient? A resilient person, according to the dictionary.com site is uh, a person who recovers easily and quickly from shock, illness, hardship, etc. So very high level definition. I mean, because I no, think there's it's, it's yeah. the best that the, the internet. Could, yeah, could no, get, I, that's right? yeah. But you can see how it's such a spectrum, though. Like you right. can see how they're how a test could really give you more information on how resilient you are, because that's like, like, how do you define that? Like right. that you were like, well, it took me three days. It took me, you know, 28 days. Does that right. mean the three days is more resilient or, you know, but that might not be that might be. The 28 days could be just as resilient as the three days. It just, you know, was a longer process. When my son was in high school and he was playing lacrosse, one of my observations about about him as a player, but also about his team as a whole, is that they were not a resilient team. Hmm. And what I meant by that was that when they would, when they could tell they weren't playing their best or they felt like they were outmatched or the score showed that they, you know, when they were losing, um, they had a really hard time coming back. Like they would kind of yeah. just fall apart, you know, Oh my gosh, we're losing. It's the end of the world. Well, no, you're losing. Pull it's almost like as when, a team and do better. It's almost like when like a, a coach says like, shake it off, go yes. out. And that's like, be, be resilient. resilient. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So I think that it could be a similar. Yeah. So I think that could also be applied to what it means to be resilient in life. You know, it's, can you, so are there, shake it off? so are there, yeah, are there connections between scars and resiliency? I mean, I think scars are a sign of resiliency. It, yeah. If, if you think about a physical scar, um, so I recently had a skin cancer removed from my face, and I have a scar, which you're always so kind to tell me you can't see. No, show me where it is. My face healed. My face is resilient, mm-hmm. right? So there's a scar there, but it shows that my skin was resilient enough to heal. So I think there is a connection between scars and resilience because scars can indicate resilience. But again, like you said before, when we're talking about emotional scars, we have to do our work. Otherwise the emotional scar is just reliving the trauma. Yeah. And I do think there, for me, I definitely see in my life a a real connection between a physical scar and an emotional scar. Um, because you know, my arm, the, the arm healed the scars, you know, are there but when i saw them that was an emotional reaction to of you know a negative reaction to seeing them but once i did the work to work through all that had happened with you know those physical scars that's when i think i became more resilient was was when i did that emotional work mm-hmm. and i think that also so i do think there is is a connection between scars of all sorts and resiliency because on both sides, because I would say, I, I would say, well, if I was to look at myself before, let's say, you know, pre my book yeah, <laughs> and then post my book, uh, that's a good like marker, even though I had done like a lot of work before the book, that's how I was able to write the book. But me before, I wouldn't say I was resilient at all um, mm-hmm. because I had so much things, like, so many things I hadn't worked through, so many emotions I didn't understand, so many um, traumas from my past that I didn't even know were there. Um, so that I, so I wasn't resilient. So if something, you know, simple happened, you know, I would just crumble something simple that anyone could do in life. Like, you know, I talk about it in the book about just going to work and just, just 
going to work and doing the work day was like, was like all I could do in life, like to do anything after work or to like, you know, keep friendships going or anything like that was like beyond what I could do because I had all this stuff hold me back that made it hard for me to, to function in any other way. But now, you know, post my book, um, and I've worked through all of that trauma and, um, and, and unresolved stuff, I would definitely say I'm way more resilient than I ever was. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I am very much keep my mental health, like my top priority, um, I think I am resilient in a lot of ways. I wouldn't say I'm like the most resilient person, but because I've worked through those scars, I definitely think I've become more resilient. So I think that connection is if you haven't worked on your stuff, you're probably way less resilient in a lot of situations than you would be if you've able to process all of that. Yeah. When you think about it in those terms, if you think about a time when you didn't see resiliency in yourself and then you can see that you, you know, how that has changed and how you've become more resilient, like that could be really surprising. Right. And also to realize, Oh, I could become even more resilient. You know, it's a, it's something we can work on. It's something we can grow into. Well, and I think sometimes, so there are things that I have worked through even though I've worked through things, it doesn't mean that they go away. Like, right. you know, those, the trauma still happened. So true. Um, you know, it's still, there are still things that are triggering. Um, so I do think the reason why I don't think I'm the most resilient person is because there are things that, that come up. So I might have an example when we're talking about triggers. So when I was 13, my oldest brother, Donnie, he was 14 years older than me. So he was 27 and he was hit and killed by a train. And that defined my life for a long time but a trigger would be like hearing a train whistle right and even in even when Stephen and I first got married and we moved into our first place you know it was like we had to find a place that where I wouldn't hear a train whistle at night because it was upsetting to me yeah it was a trigger for me well 25 years later it's not it's not as much of a trigger right I can I can go over train tracks. I can see, I can hear train whistles. I still won't go to the train trestle where his accident happened, but because it still is hard, you know, but, but it doesn't trigger me in the same way. Yeah. So something about the passage of time and about doing my own work, you know, has made that less of a trigger. But is there any kind of, any kind of emotional reaction when you experience anything train related? Is there even a little something? Not just hearing a train anymore. The only time mm. that it's hard now, I mean, I've, I have ridden on trains mm. and it's been fine. You know, earlier this year when I was in Ireland, I rode on a train by myself and really enjoyed it. Yeah. So that to me is huge progress yeah. because it, before to see a train, all I could think about was the accident, yeah. you know? And um, so it's not, it's not emotional. There might be a little bit of remembrance yeah. or a little bit of acknowledgement, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not a feeling really. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely understand that um you know one of my weird things is um is tape and sticky things like Mm -hmm. i don't like tape and sticky things and i talk about it uh, discovering why in my book but i've done the work to really understand where that comes from and so i can work with tape and i you know i but i still there's still a tiny tiny bit of reaction Mm -hmm. like it's as simple as like you using tape would have zero mm-hmm. connection to that. 
me having just a tiny bit um, because it, you know, it doesn't bring me back to, to the place, mm-hmm. but there's just a tiny little bit of something, mm-hmm. um, which is why it's important for me to always be mindful of my situations and things like that. Because if I do a lot of those like little things that bring me back to those places in a day, um, that's when I can get to a place where I'm like, okay, there's too much going on. Um, I'm not like emotionally where I need to be. So, so yeah, I mean, for me, that's like why, even though I've worked on stuff and sometimes because I've worked on stuff, like it makes things more like before I thought it was just like, Oh, sticky things, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then when I learned what it was, it like made it even more heavy. I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. well this is a little bit heavier. So I think that's why there's still something there. Um, because it's not just as simple as, Oh, I don't like that. It's like, Oh, that's way worse for me. I think there are things that because I've worked on stuff, it makes things even more intense, but not, I don't know how to say it. It's it's brought more weight to things, but it doesn't debilitate me. Mm. Um, so I'm in a good place with them. Like I'm really glad to have the answers to you know the things that are triggering for me. And you can see that it's changing, and you can see that it yeah. c- is continuing to get better. It sounds like like it's you continuing to be well. And I don't. It's, it's yeah. less now than it was before your book. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I don't let the the things in my past stop me from doing things I want to in my life now. And actually I don't, you know, my mom's talked about before, so I don't want to speak for her, but something that's been kind of cool is, um, you know, I love to kayak now and everyone in my life, I try to have them experience kayaking. Even you, I've, I've, uh, I've really pushed pushed you there. (laughs) And, um, but my mom has some water trauma from childhood Mm -hmm. and, um, like just kind of, water in general and so that's why she never wanted to kayak with me and she got on the water once and she just loved it and Mm. she was like oh my gosh kayaking is so much fun but she still has that water trauma but she still pushes herself to get on the water because she knows how enjoyable it is to kayak and so it's really cool to see her kind of push through that and still she's still like there'll be like we'll go through weeds or something and she'll be like oh uh water and and so i try to be very mindful of the places i take her and also know that she might need to turn around or we might might need to go Mm -hmm. and that's totally fine um so it's really cool to see like like physically be able to see like someone working on something so out there you know it's so obvious that it's something she's working on so it's um it's cool to see that. Yeah. But you know, that's a completely different approach that your approach with her is I think spot on. I have experienced other people in my life who would be like, well, you know, you got to suck it up, suck it up buttercup. You know, you gotta, you gotta just power through this. You gotta just face down your fears. And, and maybe there are times that that's true, but I don't think that, I don't think that's the way that you and I have built whatever resiliency we have. Well, there's different approaches. Um, I know I've learned a lot of different approaches in therapy. Like with my sticky thing, like one of the approaches my that Dr. Jill, we had her on the podcast, that she wanted to do with me was, so I, I can't remember exactly the wording she used, but I think it was like immersion therapy. But it's where basically she said like five minutes each day, like put a sticker on you. Mm-hmm. And like that was like the treatment for it, which was like, that is <laughs> horrifying. Um, and I did, I did uh, work on it um, for a while doing that. But um, so that so that approach of, you know, that's not the wording, suck it up and do it. That's not the wording of it. But like just you got to experience it like that is that is a, you know, concept, which is kind of 
what I am doing with my mom and she is allowing herself to do and has kind of chosen without like using the words for it. But that's what she's doing is she's just getting on the water. And I think it is making it better because I think she's getting more comfortable in certain areas. And we, I took her to a lake that I was like, Oh, I don't think she's going to like this, but it was like the only lake we could go to at like the certain time she did it and she really liked it. And there's just a couple of places that were a problem area. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there's definitely different approaches to it. So do you still have scars that you're working through or scars that you're still learning to love? I will never say I've worked through everything because every moment I live, there's something new. Am I actively working on scars, loving scars? No. Will there be new scars that I'm going to have to learn to love? Yes. But I can't think of any that I'm like actively needing to work on at the moment. How about you? Well, I mean, I have physical scars that I don't love. The face one. Um, yeah. Um, Which I love, but it doesn't matter. I, it's, you yeah, I, definitely, it. I definitely don't love that I have a scar on my face. And also, I don't know why I didn't realize I would have a scar on my face when they cut on my face. Mm-hmm. I just didn't think it through. But also part of that is that I, that I just wanted to be done with it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> just like, okay, now I have to have another thing. Okay, well, just take it off. Fine. Just take it off. Test it. Let me know. Yeah. Actually, that whole process was pretty uncomfortable and there probably is a better way to do it than the way that my dermatologist did it, but I don't know. Because um, the dermatologist removed it and then I had to drive myself to a plastic surgeon. Oh. And then the plastic surgeon oh. had to do the repair. Oh my gosh. And it was like, you know, that wasn't very fun. No. And I wasn't I wasn't the only person in the plastic surgeon's office waiting for that to be done. Oh my gosh. Anyway, wow. Probably there's a better way to have done that. What was it that you had taken off? I had a basal cell, which is the most common kind of skin what did, cancer. Did it look like something? Could you see it? It looked like a mole. Oh. But it, well, it was pretty small, so it probably looked more like a freckle. Mm, okay. But um, I went to the dermatologist for something else, and I was like, hey, this little freckle, it bleeds sometimes. And they were yeah. like, oh, well, wow. then it's probably skin cancer. And I was like, it's definitely not skin cancer. It's teensy, teensy, tiny. And they were, so they tested it and they were like, yeah, it's skin cancer. I definitely have physical scars that I am not yet loving. Yeah. Um, but I, but even this conversation is helping me, you know, to remember that the scar means that it's healed. Right. Yeah. So like this little one on my face, it's like, okay, it means the cancer is gone. I don't have skin yeah. cancer on my face anymore. That's a good thing. I love that. Yeah. I love that. I don't have a basal cell eating away at my face. That's, yeah. you know, I can celebrate that. I can love that. Yeah, I have a couple big scars on my back from having um, moles removed, like mm. pre-cancerous. And um, I remember when I got one of them removed on my shoulder, which I can't even see because it's on my back. On my back. Mm. I remember the um, the nurse that was helping the doctor remove it. I remember her saying, oh, just being so upset for me Aww. that I wouldn't be able to wear a strapless wedding dress, <laughs> which if you know me is hilarious. <laughs> As Beth laughs. That makes me belly laugh. That's right? hilarious. I know. And this was like 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. This is, and I was the same person then when she said that. I was like, like that would have never, ever, ever run through my head. First of all, I don't know if I've ever worn anything strapless. Um, actually, I do have a bathing suit. It's actually not strapless. It has like one strap on it. But I think you can see the scar when I wear oh. that bathing suit. But again, I don't see it and I don't care, but she was so concerned for me. And I remember her telling me this. I was like, 
it's going to be okay. Be First okay. of all, I would never wear a strapless wedding dress. And second of all, probably not going to wear a wedding dress. <laughs> if and when I get married, I'm not going to be wearing no wedding dress. So, um, yeah, so she was really concerned for me. But, um, but yeah, to me, I was like, I don't care. The scar shows that I have the mole removed and that's one less, you know, cancerous spot on my body. I'm cool with it. We're Floridians. So right, if true. we can get, if we have a mole that's questionable, get it off. Okay. It off, we are exposed to a lot of crazy sun here. And yes. so, uh, it's, it's almost like if, you know, it's almost like not if it's when you're going to have some precancer or something or something that needs to be removed. So, yeah. So for me, I'm like, yeah, take them off. Give me some scars. Uh, you know, that just shows that that's one less cancer possibility. Yeah. I think in that way, maybe for me, physical scars are a little bit easier even than the emotional scars Mm. because for a long time, my emotional, and I wouldn't have been able to articulate it this way. This is with the benefit of hindsight, but my emotional scars left me feeling unlovable that I tell people all the time, like the first year of our marriage, I was a terrible person to Steven. Mm. And it was like I was challenging him to not love me because I really didn't think I was lovable. And that's my parents loved me so well. Like, this is not about them. This is about my ability to receive it and how in my own mind I twisted things around. And just where did the unlovable scars come from? I think that I I think that my parents loved me unconditionally. I think I received it as conditional. So uh, I got a lot of praise for being a, a good student and for, you know, earning good grades. And I think that in my, I think that as a child, I turned that into, oh, I can earn their love, mm. right? If I, if I do things right, then they'll, then they'll love me. And if I don't do things right, then maybe they won't love me. Mm. My parents never, ever articulated that to me. This is just how I received mm. it in my own person. So why do you think you received it that way? I mean, based on the work that I've done, I think that I watched my parents with my siblings. My siblings really struggled in life Mm -hmm. and did not make the right choices. And because I saw tension in their relationship, I, I didn't, I didn't perceive the love that was there. So it was like, okay, well, I don't want that. Mm. I don't want the tension. I don't, you know, I don't want to be a disappointment. I don't want, Mm. you know, um, and if I do all these things, if I do really well in school, if I, you know, if I'm easy to be around, then, oh, you know. So it's from your observed environment. Right. Yeah. Right. So then learning that I was lovable and that I was loved was a profound shift for me. And now I realize that my emotional scars don't make me unlovable. Now, I still fall apart with Steven anytime I need to fall apart, right? Like, he's my person to fall apart with. When I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, like, I held it together for the world and fell apart with him. And when... um there was a time two years ago where because of some test results, we were thinking that it might be back. And I was a wreck with him. Like, you know, cause I could be <laughs> cause he, he's a safe place. He's a safe person. Did he stop loving you because of that? No, he didn't. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and he intuitively, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but he, he intuitively knew what I needed to hear even in the earliest days of our marriage. So I would fall apart. Now, keep in mind, I was 20 when we got married. So I'm talking about like 20-year-old Beth, right? And I would I would fall apart about something and I'd pick a fight with him. Mm. And he was, he was emotionally mature enough to know that nothing I was saying was about anything he had done or about anything that had actually happened. And so he would say, I just want you to know 
that I love you. I think you're beautiful and I just want to make you happy. Now you cannot fight with somebody when, <laughs> when they are sincere and they say that, you know, but he intuitively knew that I needed to hear those yeah. things. Um, and that, that, I mean, that got me so far, you know, just the, um, that, that I think eventually having that foundation eventually gave me the strength to go to counseling and to work on my emotional scars and to get to a place where I can go, okay, you know what, that I have that scar, but that's resiliency. And I love that I'm resilient. How do you think he got to the place that he could understand that it wasn't him and that you just needed to hear those things? Like, how did he get to that place? Or is he just a magical person that just popped out that way? I mean, this is going to be an answer that's probably very unsatisfying for many people, but I really think it was the grace of God. Uh, yeah. I really yeah. do because um, he's he's not, it's not like when I look at all the other parts of our life, you know, he's got this off the charts emotional intelligence. It's not that. It's like somehow he knew what I needed in that yeah. moment and and somehow my heart was open to receive it. And I think that's the grace of God. Yeah. But I did want to acknowledge that, that like our emotional scars can make us feel unlovable or like we aren't worthy of love. Um, and and maybe it's not yet a scar, right? Maybe it's a, a trauma that it still needs healing and it leaves us feeling unworthy or unlovable. You know, if, it, if anybody were to hear this podcast and was feeling that way, I just would want to say you are worthy and you are lovable. And if you need somebody to, to, to tell you that, you give us a call, we'll tell you. <laughs> we love you. Yes. And we don't have to know you to know that you are valuable and you are worthy and you are lovable. Well, Beth, as we've been talking about this conversation, you know, I realize I'm like, okay, first of all, I'm not somebody that says I love you to people a lot because I just don't. <laughs> I don't know. Because you don't love them or just no, you don't say it? I don't say it. It feels weird to me. I don't yeah. know. Like, I feel it, but I, I don't know. I, it just feels weird. But as you're talking, I was like, I love Beth. I love you too. And I was like, I wanted to say that. So I do say that sometimes to my friends, but I have to really work up to it. It's not mm. something like, I feel like people will say it very often yeah. and very like, and, and maybe they do mean it every time, very sincere. Um, I think it probably comes from my childhood. <laughs> Shocker. And I think it was like just expected that when you leave family or when you see family or mm -hmm. leave family, you give them a hug and you say, I love you, mm -hmm. you know, and, and never really in doing it because that's what we air quotes do, but never really understanding what that meant. And so I think maybe that's why it's hard for me to say it because I don't want it to ever be just said without feeling it. And so I don't say it often. So if you, if I say I love you to you, that's a big deal. So you take that and <laughs> you bottle it. it up and you keep it because it'll be a couple more years. I'm taking it and I'm going <laughs> to play it on replay every time I need to hear it. And I'm going to be like, Steph tells me every day that she loves me. It's a recording, but still. <laughs> I'll send you a personal recording so you can save it on your phone. You're welcome. So I love you, Beth. And another thing that I love that I actually can say pretty easily because it's a thing and not a person. Um, I love kayaking. You know that about me, mm -hmm. right? Yes. I don't know if I've ever mentioned it, yeah. but I love kayaking. If I don't even kayak, though, even though you don't know how to swim, which I just learned about you today. Really? I thought you knew that. I I've told, there's been a that. handful of people I've told lately just kind of randomly came up and they gave me such a hard time for it. I thought you were one of them, but mm -mm. now you, I'll add you to the pile. Of, yes. Add me. I'm going to pile yeah, on because pile it on. really, I mean, swimming is not that hard. You could learn it. 
I have a friend that is like a professional swimmer and I've asked her to teach me to swim and she said yes. That is as far as I've gotten. Anyways, my point is, and because I love to kayak, I love to track my kayaking journeys. And so recently I found a couple apps Mm -hmm. that um, I can track my um, kind of my outdoor adventures. And so one of them is called Paddler Paddle Logger. And it logs my whole paddle and shows like the exact path, which is really cool. And then have you posted that to Facebook so I can follow along? Um, no, because (laughs) so that is one thing that I have noticed I've been downloading and I have like this new all trails app, which is uh, more for hiking, Mm -hmm. but it like keeps track of your trails. And then I have this other app called relive, which actually like makes a little animation video of like your path that you took, which is so cool. But something that I've noticed when I download these apps, every single one of the apps wants me to invite my friends to follow my journey. And, um, that part has been really annoying to me because I'm like, when I post things, I want to be very intentional about it. And I don't want to just have someone have access to my accounts. And that's basically what that is. Um, does, does, has that happened to you? Cause that annoys me. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the apps that I use, I, I like, I like simple games. I like word games. And one of the apps that I use every day is words with friends Yeah, with friends. Like it's meant to be done it's with your literally, friends. Yeah. But I have several people that I always have a game going with, but I only know two of them in real life mm. because it turns out that it's harder to play words with friends with friends because some people really keep track like of how much they win and how much they lose. And so some people have decided they don't want to play with me, but Lisa and Lois. Oh, because they lose a lot. Yeah. Do you, Mm. but Lisa and Lois, Ann, if you're listening, I just want to say thanks for continuing to play with me because (laughs) it's really fun to see you on there every single day. Um, and we're like 50, 50, these, these two people. And maybe that's why it works. Like I lose half the time. Okay. (laughs) They lose half the time. But so that like is meant to be done with friends. Yeah, it's literally in the title. It's literally in the title. But to just today. Okay, so I've been doing Duolingo, which is a language app. Mm. And I took Spanish in school in eighth grade, maybe also seventh grade, for sure. Eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, and for two semesters in college. Wow, you must be really good. I should be fluent. I know we try not to shit on ourselves. I'm telling you. You should be. I should be with that many years. Yeah. If, if, and I'm a great student. Yeah, I know. Like, you yeah. know, so. Always. Uh, always. So if we were teaching language the right way in the United States, yeah, I was gonna say. right, with seven years or six yeah. years plus a year in college, um, which I guess would be seven years. Anyway, uh, I, by every right, should be fluent in Spanish. And I'm not, and that embarrasses me. How many, how do you say seven in Spanish? Siete. Okay, good job. Because I was about to say, like, maybe (laughs) you should be throwing some Spanish words in there. A lot of stuff right there. Number one, a huge issue in our education system. Yeah. I took two years of French, two years of Spanish. Si. Mm -hmm. Oui. No. (laughs) Okay. I know one phrase in French from Je m'appelle I... Stephanie. Oh, that's a good one. Yes. Yeah. Um, Peter's favorite phrase when he took French in high school was je suis un poisson, which means I am a fish. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think we all pick up on like one line and that's it. That's yes. our, that's our, um, our yeah. party trick. That's yeah, that's right. Like I, I know this language because listen to what I can say. So I do Duolingo uh, and I just hit, I don't know. I'm like over a hundred days cause you, it, there's this little fire thing. It's really cool. But the thing that's fun about it is it's like a game just today and you get points. And just today when I logged on, it was like, listen, we'll give you extra gems. If you go on a friend quest, <laughs> a friend quest. 
But you have to then like friend people in the app and go on the quest with them, you know, or like compete with them. And I'm like, I really want the gems, Mm. but I really want this language stuff to be something I do myself. Yeah. You know, not with friends. Yeah. So I have like, I think I have friended one or two people on the app. Um, I think I did that for a badge now that I'm thinking about it. But, um, but yeah, it's like, that's what all the apps want us to do. They just want us to be. It's like, oh, tell us who your friends are so we can hit them up to download this app too. Yeah. And and then try to get their money. Right. Yeah. My favorite game that I've played for like 10 years now is Panda Pop. And it's the easiest, boringest, funnest game. It makes me sad. Why? Panda Pop? Because then if you don't solve it in time. Yeah. You got, you can't look at them when they yeah, cry. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to delete Panda Pop. You just don't look at them or you do better. Do better. Beth. <laughs> it's such a simple fun game and there's no words that's my favorite part there's no words yeah oh my gosh i can't even yeah playing a game with words i'm sorry that's like thinking like that's like a nightmare at the end of each episode we end with questions for reflection these are questions based on today's show that beth will read and leave a little pause between for her to answer yourself or you can find a pdf on our buy me a coffee page number one Do you have any scars? How do you feel about them? Number two, do you look away when you see someone else's scars? Number three, have you had a medical procedure that resulted in a physical scar, an emotional scar? How did you react to that? Number four, when you see your scars, does it remind you of your strength and healing? Why or why not? This has been the Discovering Our Scars podcast. Thank you for joining us.